Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. So welcome back, everybody. My name is Ian Hall, the Griffith Asia Institute. I'm just introducing this seminar today. We're really pleased to have one of our own talking to us today, Dr. Dara Shah, who's been at Griffith now for a few years, I think, in business strategy and innovation. Eight years. Eight years or so. And Dara's today going to be talking about welfare to work, journeys of 50 years and over women on welfare. Dara's got a, a long and extensive and very impressive research record, including winning a number of very important, significant government grants. And this project has been funded by a federal government with Queensland government uh, supported grant. And so over to you, Dara, for the normal half an hour or so. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ian, for this opportunity. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. So I'm Dr. Tara Shah. I'm a senior lecturer with the Department of Business Strategy and Innovation. And I have today the project that I'm going to talk about is based on the Sisters Support Business Together project that was funded by the Australian government's Try, Test and Learn funding. And Queensland government have been our partners in the project. So today I have brought a topic about welfare to work. It is one of the papers that we are writing at the moment. I'll be talking about the journeys of women who are 50 years and over who are on welfare and how they moved from being on welfare to taking that next step into the workplace, either into the labor market or within businesses. So just to give you a bit of a background about the Sisters Project as such, um, the key objectives of this project was that we wanted to build self-sufficient and socially thriving women. We wanted that these women who are in disadvantaged and poverty and you know risk of homelessness, these women, we wanted to actually create improved life outcomes for them. And the key was the self-efficacy overall. We wanted to build that self-efficacy. We wanted to actually check how they actually improve with that support and nurturing that we provided in the project. So what did we do in that project? Mainly we identified these women, so Queensland Government's Housing was our partners in the project, and they actually had a group of women as their clients who were 50 years and over living in public housing. And we identified two major areas of Logan and Gold Coast where we got all our women participants from. We call them our sisters, as the project name is Sisters Project. So we identified these women, one half was from there and the other half were on welfare support. So we approached a lot of neighborhood centers, we approached the job active providers to identify these women who were at risk of homelessness. They might be living in their own homes but who were soon to be in that position. We brought them into the program we trained them, we coached them, we did a lot of business coaching, a lot of upskilling, we had workshops every month to skill them. And overall, for a whole year, these women were in this project, and at the end of it, it was about them starting a business. But what we did not want them to do is, here you go, this is your business, and you have to work on that. We actually worked on their passions. So what are you passionate about? Somebody might have been in gardening, somebody in retail, somebody had a love for horses or sewing, whatever their passions were. We actually helped them create a business, a sustainable business that would work. And then from there on, they, start, they moved into those next steps. 
we had $5,000 of grant for each of our sisters. So once they come in, they get all this training, but they also get a certain about $5,000 to work on their business, but it's not given to them. It's always paid against their business expenses only. So it is not money just handed to the sisters. So at the end of it, we wanted them to either start those micro enterprises or get into employment. Because what our strategy was, what our objective was, as they build that self-efficacy over a period of time, they are going to become much more confident to take that next step. And whichever it could be, it could be those businesses, it could be back into employment. And they should become positive role models for the community. Because we know that there is a lot of that intergenerational work as well where, you know, if parents are not working, kids are, you know, in Australia we are seeing a lot of youth unemployment or underemployment. So we wanted to see if there is a change in that effect as well that we wanted to check. And then the retirement plan for these women could be better as well and community building. Now one of the things that we found within this group was social isolation. And because when women are not working, they are depressed or have mental health issues, they tend to become socially isolated. And so one of the key things that we tried to do in the project was to actually bring them together with other women. And so we used to have a lot of those networking opportunities and overall trying to build that up for these women. How did this project come about? What was the context or the problem that I noticed? Aging population has been an issue overall around the world. So it's not a new thing. But Within Australian context, if we think about, labor shortages in a lot of industries has become quite common. And it has been that we have been inviting people from overseas into taking a lot of these jobs. But on the other hand, if you look at the over 50s population in Australia, a lot of people are not employed. Either because of age discrimination is one of the biggest challenge here. There was this bit of challenge where one hand we have labor shortage and on the other hand people over 50 or 55 were not working. So what we needed to do was develop the core skills and work readiness, which was something that came as a common factor within research that was missing amongst this group. So when we look at women in particular, the inequalities of wages amongst women is quite high. We know about the gender wage gap. It is a reality. Women do actually tend to take on those roles which are much more lower paid. Women tend to be discriminated against in the workforce. They are lesser paid and research suggests that is one of the realities. The other thing is a lot of women do tend to get into casual or part-time roles after having children or after marriage due to caring responsibilities. So that was another issue. And one of the things that we started seeing was that a group of women, after they were over the age of 50, which was around the 2017, I remember looking at a news article that said there's a tsunami of homelessness amongst women over the age of 50. And on Gold Coast, there were a group of women who were couch surfing. And the government wasn't even aware of that, didn't know this was going to happen. And so there were all these questions being raised, what was going wrong? How did this group of women just suddenly come to this situation? 
And so I started digging into the research and looking at what was happening. Something that came out which very strongly was that these women were not in the job market because they had taken time off to look after the families, look after kids, or look after elderly at home. So they had taken a step back from that workforce. And they were in the workforce when the, the superannuation in Australia was not compulsory. So they were there, they were working for a few years, and then they took the time off. They did not have any super. Now they have reached a position where either the partner has passed away or left, or there's domestic violence issues. Whatever the issues were, they've decided to leave and realized, now what? I don't have the skills. I don't have any superannuation. I don't have any funds to live by. So that's why a lot of these women got out. Nobody was ready to give them jobs because they had long gaps in their careers. And it became quite a bit of a challenge for these women. So these were the women who were couch surfing. And they said that when we look at the welfare payment system in Australia, Earlier it used to be the New Start Allowance, now it's called the Job Seeker Payments. Over 50% are women on that payment. And from that, about 32% of these women are over the age of 50 years. So those are some real figures to actually start thinking about. So the government really wanted to help and see how we can change this narrative that has been going on. And so the other impact this had was on their health, emotional, mental health, and physical health. So there is a lot of pressure on health services as well. So overall, there is a lot of pressure in the welfare part of it. While we have seen that there is a relatively lack of comprehensive research into understanding the financial exclusion in Australia, we have limited evidence that suggests that it is almost like a cycle. If people are in poverty situations, they're not going to get any loans. They, you know, they get financially excluded from everything, and then their debts actually increase, and so they just keep going in that cycle. So the idea was to actually make a change to this narrative. And so within Australia, when we look at it from a work perspective, people who are over the age of 55 and 60 or 64 years who want to get back into work after they have lost their jobs, it can take almost 65 weeks to get a job back. So that's a long gap in your uh, work history. And underemployment is record high in Australia. It's almost 8.5% since 2015, and it must have gone up since the COVID issues as well. So when I say underemployment, it's basically that when a person has a capacity to work a certain number of hours, but they get only very limited hours of work. And Australia has a big issue of underemployment. And of the total underemployed, 66% of them were women. And we're seeing that there is an increase in homelessness, as I mentioned before, of over 55s who are accessing homelessness services in Australia. So the age discrimination, the gender discrimination, are some of the main reasons for this. And as I said before, this particular homelessness has been hidden for a long time, and the government and nobody knew about what these issues were. So this paper that I'm going to talk about today, we looked at the self-efficacy side of things. What were the motivations of women 
when they actually go into this particular entrepreneurial journey and how entrepreneurial self-efficacy plays a part in that. So in terms of the background, some of the unique factors that affect older women as I already mentioned, they have commenced their working lives before compulsory superannuation in Australia prior to, in the earlier days, it used to actually be that women were preferred in the role of homemakers rather than going out and working. There were a lot of stereotypical occupations, so it was very gendered, and this is Australian statistics that we are talking about. So. There is that disparity of women's decreased uh, superannuation and this is not going to change suddenly and if you look at if this continues, almost for the next 50 years we are not going to see any change in that regard. In terms of the theoretical underpinning, we looked at Bandura's self-efficacy model. So what Bandura says is it is our individual self-belief in our own self on whether we can actually do something on our abilities and that is whether we are able to effectively convert the skills that are perceived as important to task performance into a chosen outcome. So it's basically if I believe in myself that I can make a change will I be able to do that change itself. What we wanted to do with the study was to actually look at these women when they come into the program we did interviews and we did surveys and we were looking at their self-efficacy at the start where they were at when they started in the program and then at six months again we did the same interviews and those surveys to check whether that self-efficacy has improved and at the end of 12 months, we did the same survey and interviews again. So what we were doing is, as a longitudinal study, trying to understand whether self-efficacy overall changes amongst this group of women are with the support that we provided in the project. We then started looking into this whole entrepreneurial self-efficacy as well. So basically, whether these women are going to be successful within that entrepreneurship or that small business that they go into. Again, it went into that belief that they would have within themselves that this task or these roles will bring employment or entrepreneurial outcomes. So this is where we started bringing in that after our second survey to actually see whether that entrepreneurial self-efficacy would actually impact these women and whether it changed at the end of the project or at the end of the year. So what Bandura actually suggests is that unless people are motivated and have the self-belief that they can do something, they will have little incentive to work or to actually keep moving forward with whatever they decide to go ahead with. So we did not want women to just start the business and then go, oh, that's okay, I've started and I'm going to leave it. We wanted them to have that improved self-efficacy so that they will continue because only if they believe that, yes, I can see that end goal, will I continue towards it. Otherwise, they were soon going to leave. Basse and Bandura's work about gender stereotyping was based on social cognitive theory. So that was the other one that we did bring in. And women's attitudes to workplace learning was strongly shaped by the constraints that were based on those gender divisions into the family domain. Who were our participants overall? So we actually had in the project almost 44 women who came into the program, did a little bit of training, but about 37 
were the ones who stayed throughout the program. They were all women who were over the age of 50. Most of them were actually closer to the age of 60. And they had very limited work exposure. They had been out of work for over 10 years. They were, almost all of them were either on welfare support or carers support or some of the other welfare support. They had been either underemployed or unemployed. And because they were on this job seeker, it kind of gave us an indication that they were underemployed or they were not employed at all. What we wanted to see was that they had to be motivated. So there is a big cohort of women who would fit into that criteria, but they wouldn't be motivated to change their circumstances. So one of our key was, you want to make a change. So it's not necessary that you have to want to do a business. It is not necessary that you will have to continue the business. The key is you want to make a change to your circumstances. We got two cohorts, as I mentioned before. One was women who were in public housing, and they were our Queensland government partners' clients. And the other one was women who were living in their homes but were at risk of homelessness and welfare dependence. Mm. And as I said, the way we identified them was through gel vector providers and through neighborhood centers and that. So we had, of course, we followed the Griffith Ethics Code of Conduct and the study had complete ethical clearance to interview and survey these women at different points in time. We also actually had fortnightly reflections with the sisters, uh, with our women participants, whom we met every fortnight to have a quick check-in of how they were going, where they were at, and whether they were going downhill, uphill, you know, if there were things that were changing. But the key was the three points in time, the interviews and the surveys that we did. The interviews mainly started off with understanding what was their motivations, one, to start, the second one was what were their motivations to continue on the project and the third last interview that we did was to actually understand what were their motivations to continue where they were at and that's where the entrepreneurial self-efficacy came in. And for the surveys we did self-efficacy and work and quality of life survey by WHO. So we did these surveys and conducted these interviews over a period of time. So what did we find? It was very, very interesting. Despite of all the, what the literature suggests, when we started talking to these women, they all were very motivated when they came into the program. They all were like, yes, I want to make a change to my circumstances. I do want to start a business or I want to learn or I want to make, do something different. They were all on government benefits. Something that came out which was very interesting in this initial interviews was that women were very scared of losing those welfare benefits. So another paper that we are writing is about how the social security can actually be a barrier to these women moving forward because they were like, oh, if I what if I start earning a little money and what if I lose my benefits? What if I can't continue the business and have I lost all my benefits? So they were very scared of losing that. And they had been trying for a very long time to secure employment and had not been successful. So these women had 
either been working for a while, they haven't had updated IT and computer skills. They were in those positions where they were like, I want to do something. I used to be a hairdresser, or I used to be designing for clothes or something, or I used to do something, but now I can't go back because everything is become computerized and I'm not up to date with my skills. And most of them did not have employment for almost 10 years or had been in casual jobs for a long time. The main motivations for them to come to us was, one, they wanted to escape their situations. They wanted to escape that because a lot of women spoke about not having had a proper meal in months or not being able to go for a coffee or not being able to go out because you, we don't have enough money to have a coffee with others, so I would much rather just stay at home. So they had been socially isolated a lot, so they wanted to change that. They wanted to start getting a source of income where they can become a bit more independent. They had lacked the support earlier, and they did not know what this business world looked like or what this employment world looked like. The job active providers that they were engaged with where they were getting that help to get back into employment did not help them at all because the jobs that they were being sent into did not match the skills or what they wanted to do. So they found this as an opportunity to be able to do something that they can change their circumstances for. 60% of women participants when they joined the program had a business idea that they wanted to work on. What happened when they started? So at first there was this whole honeymoon period, very excited, very motivated. These women came in and we thought this is going to be great because it's going to actually work out really well. They have all got a business idea. But after they came in, they were immobilized. We saw that nobody was doing anything. We were trying to contact them every fortnight to see what was happening. They were very scared. They did not know what to do. Almost 50% of them did not want to talk to us for a while. They came in, went back. They came in, went back. So they did the whole training. They were excited for that point of time. But after that, something was not going right. So we started looking at what was happening. We kept in touch with them, we provided them coaching, we contacted them, we had mentors for each of these women. Many did not actually connect with their mentors. So for some reason, it took us months before these women came back on board. But it was just a matter of there is an opportunity, we believed in them, we kept in touch with them, we're hand-holding them at every step of the way. And suddenly, in a six months' time after we started the program, so we didn't actually get all the women in at one go. We got them in batches. So after we finished the first batch, we went in for a second batch. So we started in June last year, then we had another batch in August, September, and then a third batch in December, and the fourth batch in February of 2021, and then a last batch of batch five we had in June 2021, as the government gave us further funding to continue that project. So what we realized was once these women had been in the project for a period of time, things changed. They started believing in us. They started believing in themselves. So it took them a long time to have that self-belief, 
because about over 60% of these women had been victims of domestic and family violence in their lives. And so they had been through such a trauma in their lives that while they were excited to take the step ahead, they had to take a step back because they were very scared. But once they had that faith in us and themselves, they started moving forward. And then what we saw was just magic. What we saw was these women were taking decisions about taking on that business. They needed coaching. They were contacting us, wanting us to help them with this business idea or we are thinking of doing this, making a change to my business idea that I had originally because I think this will make more money. They were just turning around. And then COVID hit, <laughs> which really scared us as to how are these women going to react because COVID played a big part in affecting a lot of small businesses around the world. So these women who had just taken that first step were very scared at first. But somehow they were all positive because they had gained that self-efficacy over a period of time and they kept moving forward. Many of these women decided to change their business. They went online. They did not have digital literacy skills up to a certain mark, but they were happy to take on more training. So we actually started introducing workshops that could actually help them improve those skills as well. So it actually created that whole support system around them and they were supporting each other because they actually started contacting each other and going, okay, don't worry, I'm here for you. I went through this last week. So they actually became a community within themselves. And coming to the university for all their training actually made them want to build that confidence further into them and also started having the intergenerational impact where they started talking about the university to their kids and also to their families to go and study at the university. There were a lot of these changes that we were seeing in these women. And at the end of it, we found that almost 70% of these women started their businesses. And many of them are actually making money already. So it was a big turn around that we saw and how self-efficacy overall was playing a role in changing that. But the first initial phase took a lot of time to build that confidence among these women. So that is one of the things that when you are working with vulnerable and disadvantaged group, a lot of times people move away thinking that that's not going to work or they're not going to come back. But because we maintain those connections with them, help them build their self-efficacy, the changes we were seeing in these women were amazing. And while the previous research on the entrepreneurial self-efficacy is an imperative lens that helped us look at the individual self-efficacy and entrepreneurial outcomes, for this particular cohort in itself, it was important to first help them build that self-efficacy before moving to that next stage of that business. Because once they had that self-belief in themselves, it became much easier for them. And for our participants, who are from these disadvantaged, precariat and aging positions, circumstances, suffering from unemployment, discrimination and other life situations had lowered their self-efficacy so much that while they were motivated, they took a long time to take that next step. So of course our study has a lot of research 
as well as policy implications, and at some level government intervention was necessary to facilitate that environment, which was about recognizing that strength that this diverse workforce can bring to the organizations or to the labor market in general. So we need to have a more inclusive work environment overall. And by investing in older women workers and providing this dynamic and participant-driven training, it is possible to increase self-efficacy and decrease the reliance on government, welfare and services. So thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.